Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. And also, if you're a Patreon supporter, we give away a box of books every week to one of our Patreon supporters, and we have more bonus episodes and bits and pieces as well as book shambles there are other podcasts to be found at cosmicshambles.com including speakeasy uh the q a's that uh, professor brian cox and i did on the first part of our uk tour and there may well be some from the later tours as well you can find those at brian q a uh, as well as documentaries and web series that are coming up very very soon that's all at cosmicshambles.com <laughs> Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Hello, Josie. Hello. Right, so Tim Harford has joined us. Uh, you, now, uh, you're, you've had two books out in quick succession because uh, Messy, your previous book, was only out like last October, wasn't it? Yeah, about so? six, seven months ago, yes. Um, I'm a machine. Now, this was the... Uh, I love it when they re- admit they're replicants. We haven't had to do any form <laughs> of test on him whatsoever or check his unicorn dreams. The... Um, an economist, we we are replicants on Earth. You know that. <laughs> we have we just it's our just emotional response to everything is just slightly off. Um, but your book, Messy, uh, which my wife was quite cross about because when she saw it, when I got the copy of it and I put it on, t- she went, "Right, no way, no way, another excuse that somehow messiness is for artists and stuff, and it's all acceptable." No, this house is a mess because of your messiness. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I, I can. <laughs> Try and pacify your wife later if you, if you like, but uh, yeah, actually, well, I, don't say that. Now we've found out you're a replicant. I know how your pacification works. One thing I do uh, now is I, and this sounds so. It's now is going to sound so pathetic, but I I have one hour a week on a Monday morning when I just say right, no phones, no computers. I'm just going to sit quietly with a pen and paper and just think and write. And uh, how do you find the work that you do in that time? Like, how do you find it works out? At the moment, I'm fine because it's quite new. I've only been doing this for a month, and I'm finding it unbelievably difficult and painful. I'm uh, just—it's just cold turkey. I'm like, I've got to look things up on the internet because how can I write if I can't look some things up on the internet? And and but I'm going to keep going because I mean it's really such a low bar, isn't it? One hour should be possible. Well, I think anything pointing in the right direction, you know, no matter how small seeming, you've got to do. And and I also think that like. It's a dimension of real kind of enjoyment and pleasure that people are denying themselves. Like, I love navigating and I love using maps to navigate and I love learning routes and I love, like, learning the little code where I have to pick up my tickets with. Like, it is genuinely mentally very pleasurable and fun to kind of take yourself out of those things. Um, the I'm, Can I... No, I interrupted. But I want to ask you a question, which is, you know what the... Okay, Alexa, play me this song. How do you feel that that's going to affect, you know, things in a broader sense, like economics, like society, like sociology, that sort of thing? I, I do worry that these... I mean, I sound like such a lefty, and of course I'm not a lefty because I'm an economist and we're all kind of Milton Friedmanites, but I do worry... Hey, well, Stieglitz, he's... He's one I like, Krugman. Yeah. Krugman. Are there a lo- he's great. He's a great guy. There are, actually, there are lots of lefty economists, but we do tend to think, oh, competition will sort it all out. Um, but in the case of things like Amazon, Google, Apple, uh, I mean, Amazon's amazing, but I wish there were two of them. Um, but it seems like every time there's a little hint that there's going to be a new Amazon, Amazon buys it or crushes it one mm. way or another. Um, and at the moment, it's all, it's all cool if you're a customer. You just 
they'll they'll give you a great deal. They're they're totally focused on that. But in the end, when they own everything, including us, our souls, all our information, yeah, I worry. There's, there was um, I can't remember. They which, just bought which, what Whole Foods is it? The they just bought Whole Foods, which yeah. which is a lovely um, lovely organic kind of superstore in the states. I, years ago, when I lived in the states, I was just literally across the road from a Whole Foods, and it was very very nice. So it's, it is it's so just, expensive. It's the most expensive. There's a couple in England, and you go, oh, I'm going to buy myself this nice little drink and a satsuma, fifty three pounds. I'm going to buy the satsuma. Can I buy the satsuma in parts? I'd like three segments, thank you. It's really the opposite of Amazon. The Whole Foods and Amazon are are because Amazon's all about. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. It's we're just going to get it to you immediately, and it's going to be super, super cheap. Whereas Whole Foods is all. It's like the, the, the kind of they have misters, uh, you know, over the vegetables in Whole Foods. It feels like they're growing them in the shop. That's mm. how local it is. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's but, beautiful romance novel, isn't it? But through the, the Satsuma mist of the Whole Foods <laughs> store, I caught her eye. Fruit and veg in Whole Foods. That's the thing. Um, but the the Alexa thing. If you think about it, you're saying right, we're going to put a microphone in your home, and we'll record everything you say and we'll keep all of that information to understand your life um, we're not going to give you any of that information um, and you'd say well you'll, you have to pay me quite a lot of money to do that you're like no no you pay us for that like right why would i do that you're like well we can we can ship you sweets and books really quickly you're like, all right fair enough so yeah we, we give in because it's easy but in the long term i do worry my brows will never be perpetually virtual I think it is is vital. It's one of the things we should mention on the show, which is to support all bookshops to actually... Because it changes. I I, I still don't... I I think the figures aren't too bad now. I mean, I know there was meant to be this kind of point where we would all just be on Kindle and blah, 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 but actually... Physical books coming back. Yeah, and it is a great thing where a proper browse around, you know, the the second-hand bookshops, the new bookshops, you know, uh, places like Newham Bookshop, all of those Mm. places. uh, And there is something that, at least for my elderly generation, and maybe even Joseph's slightly younger generation... It cannot be replicated, that point of finding... Because no, however you could program a physical bookshop, it would never be able to just go, you need this book. You require that moment of going, oh, hang on, I definitely need this book, which I had no knowledge of whatsoever. Well, it's like the Amazon thing where they go, you bought a bin. You must love bins. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, no, no, I needed a bin. This is not helpful. You're never going to get that with them. Um, you like Revolutionary Road. Have another copy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's quite strange. Apparently, have either of you been to the physical Amazon bookshop in Manhattan? No. no. So apparently, because they just opened it a few months ago, and there are queues outside. Everyone wants to get in. But apparently, it's quite weird because it's uncannily like being on the Amazon website. In a, in a weird way. I haven't been there. I've just read descriptions of it. But it is all very... It's All the displays are very flat. You, know, you don't see any book spines, all just book covers facing out at you. And it and it's all very much, oh, this is recommended f- for people who like this and these are the, this is our top ten business books. And it's, fe- it's a very... Apparently, it's a very clean experience. Oh, it's horrible, like that. though. That idea yeah, of I don't walking like in and going, ah, Tim, I'll take you to the corner that is for you. That every single one just becomes, ah... Josie, welcome to Amazon. 
we know where you want to go. <laughs> That's a really, it's like that, I remember that Alexi Sale sketch from, I think, Alexi Sale stuff, where they were talking about magazines, that been magazines for everyone, but there was still some market that hadn't been covered, and eventually it was a magazine for something like uh, Mrs. Jane Owen. There's <laughs> nothing for Mrs. Jane, finally, a magazine for Mrs. Jane Owen, by Mrs. Jane Owen. Um, Kramer Books in Washington, D.C., DuPont Circle, downtown D.C., is a wonderful, wonderful bookshop, and... The I remember the excitement. My first book was published, and it would it became real when I went to Kramer Books, and there it was oh, in wow. the window. It was such an amazing experience. But Kramer Books is brilliant because it's like you know a regular bookshop. You only you're only really interested in ten percent of the books, and ninety percent of the books are rubbish you don't want to read. Well, Kramer Books have just got rid of the ninety percent. <laughs> it's just the books that I want to read. It's uh, but I, but all the books I never knew I wanted to read, but now I do. So oh. it's a wonderful shop. Sorry, so let's talk about your book first before we get on to other books. The, this, new, the, the latest book, the latest, Fifty Inventions yeah. That Shape the Modern Economy. Yeah, actually, that's that's the US cover I'm waving around. Um, the uh, the British edition is called Fifty Things That Made the Modern Economy. Just very slightly different for confusion's sake. So it's based on the BBC series that I have been presenting for the last half a year and it is all about surprise surprise the clues in the title 50 things that made the modern economy so the barcode the elevator or more precisely the elevator break because we had elevators for ages but no one would get in them until they got a safety elevator so they got a break um concrete uh, double entry bookkeeping so talk about that. that's key, interesting that the elevator break because I remember a story I once saw the uh, the jazz critic uh, Benny Green told this story which I don't know if it's true which is escalators when they first uh, had escalators people were very worried I mean you still see it now you see people who are a little bit tremulous before they get on an escalator when I was a kid I was terrified absolutely terrified well, escalators are properly dangerous though not like elevators that are super safe is well, that, that true? Yeah, well, I say properly dangerous. The, uh, escalators are... Th- we do not have good statistics, I should say, but the best statistics we've got suggest that escalators are... Um, elevators are incredibly safe and escalators are merely reasonably safe. Ooh, I don't Stairs, like on the other hand, very dangerous. So <laughs> I think it's the basic... Basically, it's the stairs problem, I think. Escalators are just like stairs and stairs are dangerous, but elevators are very safe. That escalators are good... It's a good way of judging people. Those who stop we're their always, own movement the moment they stand on anything that moves for them, I consider to be innately lazy. <laughs> you know, anyone who, when they're on well, the moving walkway, and the moment they touch that, stop! Lazy. At least a few paces. I used to have a little internal mantra, which was, do you have a pain in your leg? No. Then you must walk up the escalator. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, the Benny Green story was that, I can't remember which, do you know what the first London Underground station was that had had escalators? I'm not sure. But it was basically that that people were so worried that they employed a man to just go up and down the escalator. So so they go, oh, look, that guy's done it. That's fine. Up the escalator, down the escalator. But that still didn't make people, they still were apparently nervous. Uh, And so they employed a one-legged man to go up and down the escalator to show how easy it was. And of course, the story is that he would go up and down and they'd just hear people going, I'm not going up that, but that man lost a leg. So uh, (laughs) Benny Green may have been lying. I don't know. It's not often you hear about the jazz critic uh, and punch writer Benny Green anymore. Not enough. But I'm 48 years old. (laughs) So how did you go about finding the objects? Was it a case of, like, you had a few things that you'd already kind of thought about and then you would, like, on the hunt for them? Yeah, so I got a... Obviously, I had a few ideas that I knew. Economics nerds, we we, we love the... um, we love the shipping container, for example. We were all over the shipping container. Very, very interesting shipping container. The plough, that's a classic. That was the moment when civilization became possible. Um, but a lot of them, um, you'd hear something or you'd get an idea. I'd talk to people and and they would the 
the reason the kind of the, the method I used to choose the 50 was not what are the most important 50 because the steam engine's not in there the computer's not in there the car's not in there yeah, the planes those ones are like exactly. mainstream the, 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 the criteria was what are the most interesting 50 what are the ones where there's a really interesting story to tell particularly an interesting story with maybe a lesson about the way the economy works because the problem I have as an economist talking about the economy is it's, it's all numbers uh, it's all acronyms it feels very abstract. Even to an economist, it feels abstract. So to be able to say, well, let's talk about the gramophone, not as a cultural force, but as an economic force that changed the income distribution and directed all the returns to the people at the top and then deprived people further down the the skill spectrum of income, even though their skill hadn't changed. Suddenly, no one wants to listen to the 10th best opera singer in the world anymore because we listen to the the, you know, the best of all on the gramophone. Yeah. That sort of thing. There's an economic lesson there. Um, so it's just looking for these interesting stories and trying to cover different different industries and different eras and you know, different issues. Well, you mentioned the plough, and I wonder. About, there's a couple of books I've, I've read little passages from which suggest that even though we go farming, farming changed it all. And then various people have written recently to say farming was the end of humanity. We were very happy when we were just wandered around from place to place with our goats and left our elderly by a stream to die, and then we placed ourselves in a fixed position. And uh, like that that story about the, the well, I can't remember which book it's in the the the, um, the, the fisherman who goes out and, and fishes. You probably know the story. Yeah. And, and someone goes, um, you just go out and fish and you just get fish for yourself. Why don't you uh, you know why don't you run a little fleet and, and make more money? And he goes, well, I just get, go out and I, I fish and then I come back and I eat the fish and we sit and watch the sunset and have some retina. And they go, well, no, why not build it and build it? And of course the guy then builds this huge thing. And he said, and eventually you know you'll have a huge fleet and you'll be able to send other people down. You'll be able to just sit and watch the sunrise and have retina. So you kind of just get caught the idea of, of an economy which appears to be giving freedom but actually ties you down to eventually have the freedom you had already yeah i do touch on that jared diamond is is the i think most famous uh, proponent of the idea that agriculture was the biggest mistake in the history of the human <laughs> race um I, i'm not totally convinced by that but and i do explain there is some in, interesting evidence that when agriculture came in immediately our our stature fell we got six inches shorter in the course of a few generations not enough vitamins not enough minerals but it, it sustained a population explosion so basically you have these armies of, of malnourished soldiers driving the uh, the foragers away from their uh, their hunting ground and then plowing it all so um so yeah i mean the, some of these inventions do have a dark side to them uh, and, and some don't so. well, you mentioned that 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 haber bosch is in the book yeah Fr- fritz harbour he's a, and that seems to be the in terms of one of those things that when it is mentioned people go bloody hell this really did change everything this this makes modern life and with our population possible but it's possibly not as uh, you know known publicly as as it should be no so and the story of fritz harbour is incredibly interesting and tragic so the harbour bosch process is basically a way of fixing uh, nitrogen from the atmosphere because the, the air we breathe is mostly made of nitrogen but it's no use to plants in that form so Fritz Haber and uh, Bosch came along later and industrialized it, but Fritz Haber came up with a method of uh, uh, cre- creating artificial fertilizer f- using the nitrogen in the atmosphere. And so once you do that, you can grow as much food as you like. Suddenly land's not uh, scarce, food's not scarce. Previously they used guano, but, but people were going to wars over guano deposits and we were, we were reaching peak guano and we were running out of guano. And then suddenly Harbour solves the problem in a stroke. 
Guano is basically bird, bat yeah, bird, bird yeah. poo and bat yeah. poo, yeah. Um, I always just think of the bats. Yeah. I didn't realise there were bird elements. Oh yeah, as well. absolutely. So there are these sort of islands off the coast of Argentina that people were, you know, literally going to war over. Um, so Harbour develops this, which is revolutionary, uh, and sustains a population explosion in the 20th century. The other thing he did, which is a bit awkward, is pioneer uh, weaponized chlorine. Oh God. And deployed it at the Western Front in the First World War. He was very, very proud of this because he saw himself as a German patriot. Uh, came home and had a celebratory dinner. I mean, and it, the accounts of the initial use of chlorine, absolutely horrifying. Um, but he was very pleased with himself because he thought he'd done his duty as a German. Um, his wife, Clara, who'd literally been left at home holding the baby. She had a great academic career. She was the first woman in Germany to get a doctorate in chemistry. Her career had been laid waste by Fritz Haber's career. And she, when she found out what she had done, she took his service revolver and killed herself. Um, and Harbour then ends up dying alone in a hotel room in Switzerland because although he was a German patriot and honoured for his contributions oh. to Germany, he was also Jewish. So that didn't work out too well for him in the 1930s. So he is the ultimate... There, there are a couple of tragic Germans in the book, but he's the, he's the ultimate one. That is all-round brutal. There's yeah. It's a fascinating thing that when you talk about the, I, w I was reading something about uh, I think it was in, in a book by Howard Zinn or so. It was just talking a little bit about napalm, and I'm fascinated about those people who create you know napalm where you have this thing where people go oh, it works quite well but people can jump into water. Uh, so so oh hang on a minute well we can add something you know it's phosphorus isn't it I think which is added mm. to it which means that when you jump into water it's even worse oh but it still manages to oh now we can make it sticky so these three processes of in ensuring the maximum agony yeah and yet the possibility of of distancing yourself because that seems to me to be different to people like for instance those who are working in Los Alamos uh, you know developing the, the atom bomb. I can yeah. see how they might be able to, even though many of them afterwards then went, what have, what have we done and what destruction can there be? But something like napalm yeah. or chlorine... I just, I there's, a, there's a very good book, a very sobering book by Jonathan Glover, who was a moral philosopher who taught me when I was a student. Uh, and he wrote a book called Humanity, and the subtitle is A Moral History of the 20th Century. He's a moral philosopher, just, but he turns historian and he turns psychologist and he... He starts with, I think, the Armenian Genocide and goes through the trenches, the Holocaust, um, the Great Leap Forward, all of the terrible, terrible things we did to each other in the 20th century, and asks, um, how, how did this happen, basically? What, and, and what were the psychological mechanisms that people used to get themselves to do this? So how did the Nazis persuade Germans to run concentration camps? Um, and one of the methods he saw again and again was this idea of um, kind of professionalizing things and bureaucratizing things. And you start focusing on, well, um, when we're shipping Jews to the concentration camps in this train, but we need to make sure that um, the, all the paperwork is correct and um, there's a missing, um, there are 50 fennecs not accounted for. Uh, and so we need to chase down the missing 50 fennecs and, and just focusing on these tiny details because then you don't have to think about what's actually being done, the crime that's being committed. Well, and also, like, yeah, like if you're talking about divorcing us from our humanity, you know, you, you go to work in an institution and it's a scientific institution and you're there because you're trying to do your specialised work in that institution. You can see how that level of abstraction 
brief oof. guys yeah brings in that let's get on to your book Messi <laughs> yeah. um, but that sounds like a really interesting book right? like it, it's really um, yeah it's useful to get a recommendation like that it really is yeah yeah, Glover's book's very good. Glover's book's very good. Obviously, my book's great as well. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the um, great so, save, great save. So, Messi, can we just quickly because I presume that's going to be out in paperback soon as well, isn't it? It is, so, it is um, coming out at some stage soonish. I'm not sure exactly when. And um, the idea behind the book is that uh, there are there's a tendency, I think, in modern life to to try to get everything in boxes a little bit like Josie was just saying about you, you're in an institution you box yourself in you're thinking about your your own narrow role so we put things in boxes we quantify we have targets everything gets scripted you phone up a call centre they're on a they're on a script um, they feel, you feel like you're talking to a robot even if you're actually talking to a human being um, everything everything has to be prepared you can't improvise um, and just saying well I mean that kind of systematization of the world is great in many ways. It's given us lots of good things. Shipping containers. You know, big shout out to shipping containers. They're great. Um, but sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it's counterproductive. And we cling on to it um, because we find it sort of soothing and reassuring. And actually a bit more randomness, a bit more improvisation, vagueness, um, diversity, working with people who make us feel a bit uncomfortable, a little bit edgy. All of these things are worth celebrating um, because not because they're always the right approach to life, uh, but because they're underrated. Um, and there is also a section on why your messy desk is actually incredibly well organised. It just doesn't look like it. Mine isn't. It really isn't. It would. Uh, um, no desks are self-organising. Can I? Can I have a word about self-organising desks? Yeah. Yes. So, it's, so you, you should tidy your kitchen, you filthy pig. But it's fine <laughs> to have uh, a messy desk because when you, if you think about a pile of paper on a desk. Um, that is self-organizing in the following way. You pick, pick out a piece of paper from the pile. You look at it, you do something with it, you put it back on top of the pile. So now it's on top of the pile. Now you pick out another piece of paper from the middle of the pile. You do some work on it, we read it, whatever. You put it back on top of the pile. So now the, the pile is starting to arrange itself, or maybe a pile of books, whatever, starting to arrange itself in order of what you've touched most recently. And if you talk to a computer scientist about how they organize memory caches in computers, they use exactly the same system, which is whatever we've looked at most recently, we leave in the cache. Anything we haven't looked at recently gets banished from the cache when the cache is full. Um, because the fact that you've used something recently is a good predictor that you will probably use it again soon. So you, you've got a, a lovely visual layout. You can It's tactile. You can see where everything is. All the relevant stuff is on top of the piles. All the stuff you should be throwing in the bin and will in due course throw in the bin is on the bottom of the piles. And when psychologists kind of get into offices and study people working, they find that the, the people who systematically file end up with massive archives, stuff full of rubbish. They don't know where anything is because there's, there's a thing called premature filing. The premature filing is you need to tidy your desk, you pick up a piece of paper or a book, you put it away somewhere, but you never really understood what it was because you didn't spend enough time with it. And now it's gone and there's some abstract label somewhere, but the label doesn't make any sense to you and you, you'll never be able to find it again. It's well, the myth that tidy people are better people when they're actually awful idiots who don't understand anything. Absolutely right. Well, I mean, the I am struck. One of the other things I say in the book, there's a great psychological study about 
um, letting people make their own mess or tidiness. So basically giving people control over their own desks yeah. is very productive. And some people are tidy and some people are messy, but just leave them to get on with it. Don't don't try and control them. Um, but it is interesting. All the discussions and interviews I've had about the book, you speak to very, very successful people who are kind of um, top radio and TV journalists who are at the top of their profession who go, oh, I feel so much better about my desk now. You're like, well... Why did you need me to convince you that your desk was okay? Because you know you're, you know you're famous and you're rich and everyone wants to be you and you're clearly very productive and you're a grown up, and yet you need my book to tell you that it's all right to have paper on your desk. Of but we need right. that all the time, don't we? We need however, just that bit. They're going, no, I have I have an alibi and it's in print now. So yeah. when you're being harangued by someone, especially if you're a shared office space, and I mean, in my the shared office space I've got, my the, it actually now is dipping. The piece of wood that makes my desk is now sinking due to the weight of bits of you know books and bits of magazines and all that kind of stuff. I've Not, never seen your desk. That's very interesting to me. Robin's never seen his desk. <laughs> no, I have. There, there was a point where somewhere underneath is the imprint of the last cup of coffee that was actually there was enough space to place that on there. But yeah, you're still being productive. But you you, you always imagine that you could be creating... You know when people go, if only I was like this, then I'd be able to make this. But then, of course, if you were like that, you might not be able to make all the other things. I don't know if that's an alibi or not, that bit of creativity. Where it's not when someone says, do you know what, the one thing I look back and I, I, I wish I wasn't so shy, or something like that, and you think, well, if you weren't so shy, then you wouldn't be the human being that you are either. So, Yeah, I mean, we all have our weaknesses, and we should try to fix our weaknesses. But very often, we fixate on things that aren't weaknesses at all, and we, we tell ourselves that there's some problem with the way we work. But for me, it's um, multitasking. I, I'm always beating myself up about... Because obviously, if you're checking Twitter and email all the time, it's a problem. But um, I, I beat myself up about, well, I'm working on this book, and then I stop, and then I'm working on a radio series, and then I stop, and then I'm back to the book, and then I stop, and then I'm on my column. But I got halfway through my column, and then I stopped with my column, and I went back to the book. And then, yeah, but that's and then, good working practice. Well, and it, well I... It turns That's out, how I did things. Well, it turns out it's also how Darwin did things and Jane Austen oh, did yeah. things. Keep it so going. There are, there are various different studies by various different psychologists who've used different methods um, of very productive scientists, very productive novelists and so on. And what they find is that this kind of task switching, you've got multiple projects on the go and you switch between them. Very, very common indeed. So uh, multitasking in the sense of trying to write while on Twitter is probably not a good idea. But multitasking in the sense of... Well, I mean, Robin, you're an expert on Darwin, aren't you? I've, or... Certainly not an expert. Well, you, you <laughs> know a, more... I'm an idiot, but I've got enough interest to be able to make uh, create an illusion if the time on stage to talk about Darwin is short enough. Yeah. That's the way I see it. Do you want to create that illusion for us now? Because he, he used to just switch to study earthworms, didn't he? Whenever he got a bit stressed with the whole evolution thing, he'd be like... I'm just going to study Well, some Barnacles was the one which a lot of people feel was because I've mentioned before, but Steve Jones, you know, who wrote, uh, written many wonderful things, including the language of genes and almost like a whale. And, and he feels that Darwin overly obsessed about Barnacles. And he says that the book, the two volumes about Barnacles are still really the major works about Barnacles because no one's ever really obsessed about Barnacles as much as Darwin. And he did feel that that was, um, I, I'm going to do Origin of Species, but, but I better get back to these, these Barnacles. <laughs> Because the barnacles, so there is a sense that Earthworms was quite, that was his last book, so that, that's quite late on. Um, but yeah, the barnacles books, I, th I think various people have suggested that, that that was a little bit of an activity to go, I, I 
will write this book mm. that may well kill God, uh, but for the time being, I'll well, he didn't say kill God. That was the uh, you know Huxley. And it's not. Just, I mean, that's an anic- an anecdote about Darwin, and it's it's nice to tell stories and so on. But there is data on this as well. So Bernice Edgerson, who's a uh, psychologist, she she died a few years ago, but many decades ago, she began this study of lots and lots of different early career scientists and just tracked all their working practices for decades. And eventually she died and other researchers picked up her work and kept going. And she was able to say, well, some of these people in the end got the Nobel Prize and some of them, their careers completely fizzled out. And so are there any predictors of success? And one of the predictors is if you do really brilliant stuff really early on, you're probably going to have a good career. So that's not a surprise. But more surprising was how many times did you switch fields? So you're working on you know this particular subject and you stopped and you switched to something else and then you did that for a bit and then you switched back to the first field and then you switched to a third field and then you switched back to the second field and back to the third field. And how often did that happen? And what she found is in the most productive scientists, in their first hundred academic papers, they switched, I think it was 45 times. Wow, so that's so basically every other one. Every other paper, they're like, something new now. And they were the people who went on to get the Nobel Prizes or, or other big awards so your inspirations in terms because i think the first book i read of yours undercover economist which was based on the uh, radio 4 work wasn't it uh, uh, no undercover economist was actually my first kind of creative work of any description so it was published in 2005 and then almost immediately that it was published weirdly uh the ft said why don't you have a well i, I said to the ft i've just got a book out called undercover economist why don't i have a column called undercover economist as well and they went Okay, ha! and it's only now I realise this is ridiculous, and the column's been running for twelve years now. Um, and then almost immediately after that, there was a TV show, uh, and I've really been in decline ever since. <laughs> or, or as we radio buffs like to think of it, uh, I've been in the ascendancy ever since because then I moved to Radio Four, which is much better than BBC Two, I have to say. So, who, when you started uh, writing? Who had been your inspiration? Who are the people that uh, you think this this is a way of explaining to? Because I think there is a problem. You read a book, a fascinating book, but you don't then manage to put it into your life. You find it, you, so it becomes a series of, of interesting anecdotes that are then not, hang on a minute, that should have a practical way that I can use that in my own decisions. You know, like using the scientific method to kind of make that, hang on, I, you can use that to make a lot of decisions. Actually, my... The most obvious inspiration was actually a science writer called David Badanis, who's a friend of mine, who uh, I met years ago, and he had just published a book called E equals MC squared. And I was completely in awe of him, but for some reason he was happy to go for coffee with me. And, 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 and I said, oh, gosh, I, I um, wish I could write a book about economics like E equals MC squared, this book about physics, because it goes through, it's not just, oh, here, you know, here's how relativity works it went through the whole history of what is energy and who first came up with the idea of energy where did the idea of equals come from where did the idea of of mass come from and light and the speed of light and then once uh, Einstein developed his theory then what happened and it goes through to the Manhattan project so you've got all the science but there's a history of science and there's a history of humanity in there as well so I thought well that's wonderful and I said to David gosh I wish I could do that about economics and he looked at me with this kind of big sort of indulgent grin on his face and I was like oh yeah I could just oh I could just do that couldn't I I could just I don't have to ask anyone's permission and so and that was the beginning of the undercover economist so my inspiration most direct inspiration was a science writer brilliant we better wrap up by the way the story that I'm really sorry for we were talking about the way you edit things and stuff in radio and I told the Mexican fisherman story very badly and I can't remember which the trouble is I read messily as well 
I don't finish any books. I grab them, and then so I have like every time we do one of these, I think I don't know if I've read anything in the last month. I know I've been constantly reading. But I'm not sure you've I've read, actually read anything. You've read ten things about 50 pages from varying parts that you needed to read. I'm sorry as well, because what we normally do is be like, tell us about books that you love. Oh, no, I wouldn't apologise. We've we've never um, focused so much on what books he's actually written. Right, let's have a look at the list of books. That's that's uh, a list of books that inspired me when I was writing Messy, and that's a list of books that inspired me when I was writing 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. Oh, The Man Who Loved Only Numbers is, I think we've talked about that before, about about Airdish, which is just... It's amazing. Yeah, it's a great book. It's such a great... Airdish is completely amazing. Yeah, for those who don't know, the Airdish number is this... Basically, he did so many mathematical papers with so many people... Uh, that uh, there is an Airdish number that if you wrote a paper with him, then you have an Airdish number of one. If you wrote a paper with someone who oh, wrote yeah, a paper yeah. with Airdish, then you have Airdish number two. And almost anyone in maths is below 10 in an Airdish number, aren't yeah. they, it seems? No, I, think, I think the highest Airdish number known might be eight. I think it's, it's either if you don't have an Airdish number of eight or less, then you don't have an Airdish number at all, if I remember rightly. But yeah, there are something like 40,000 people with an Airdish number who are sort of spinning in orbit around... It's amazing. Man. Yeah, I love it because it's like it's like the old nineteen seventies Incredible Hulk or the Littlest Hobo. But you know, because he'd turn up to David Banner, Bruce Banner, I can't remember which one he is in the TV series, uh, would turn up to a town and then change the town and then leave with his rucksack. And you kind of get that idea really, you know, he just kind of turns up to a town. Hello, you do maths. Do you yeah. want to do a paper? I've got loads of ideas in my head. Yeah, come on in. Three days yeah. later, I'm exhausted. Thanks then. That's all the maths I can get out of your head. Bye. There's a description in, in one of the Erdish biographies, possibly the man, man who loved only numbers, of him at a in a hotel room at a maths conference. And there are eight other mathematicians in the room. And he's going from one mathematician to another. So basically just talking about their idea and advancing it and then he moves to the next mathematician and the next mathematician and but like it's like a waiter serving canapes and by the time he gets back to the first mathematician the thinking's moved on a bit and like he contributes a chess game. Some, yeah it's like exactly like, like those guys chess. who play 10 chess games and halfway through one of these conversations he suddenly yells out in hungarian to his mother who's in the room next door and he's also been following a conversation she's been having in hungarian while writing he's writing all these maths you just think okay that is actually a superpower yeah that's terrifying this is a, such a great list of stuff that I just... The shock of the old sounds great, don't it? Alison Wolfe, The XX Factor. Fun yet rigorous exploration of women's participation in the workforce and how and why it's been changing over the years. No one has done this much, uh, like, kind of homework beforehand. These, I should say these are available so, on your website for people straight off. Yeah, that. so it just... Uh, what I did before I came into the studio was I printed off two blog posts from timharford.com. One was a list of books that inspired me when I was writing Messy, and if you want to you know, find out more and go and read the books, and another is a list of books that inspired me when I was writing 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. So, yeah, if you go to timharford.com, the lists are there. Brilliant. Tim Harford, thank you very much. Uh, thank you. You all right, Josie? Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, thank you to also some of our Patreon supporters. We obviously thank all of you, but each week we try and thank a different group of you. If we've forgotten to thank you so far and you've noticed that, then just send us a message and we'll make sure you are on the credits. So this week we would like to thank Rob Cave, Diddy Elnif, Lydia Vai, Colin Reese, Mitch Ben, Julie Giles, Vanilla Vanilla, Russell Hyling, Eleanor, Jen Cottle, and the Box of Books winner is James Hunt. 
Don't forget, if you'd like to check on the reading list for this particular episode or any episodes, or indeed find out other guests that we've had on, the full list of both those things is at cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.